All right, let's go to the Word of God. Uh, come with me, please, uh, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 15. Acts, the second chapter. And we're going to be reading from verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then in Acts, sorry, then in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, reading from verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise up. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of men, of all men, the most uh, miserable. A strong belief and conviction in the certainty of the resurrection is not optional to the believer. That's something we can pick and choose whether we agree or we disagree. It's central it's absolutely foundational. In fact, our whole system of belief, our whole belief in Christ as the Son of God, our belief in the Bible as the Word of God is predicated on the fact that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is non-negotiable. It cannot ever be argued against. If we lose that pearl, then the whole necklace of the Christian faith begins to unravel. So it is absolutely vitally important. Christianity is the only religion on earth that's founded upon a resurrected man. All other religions are founded upon men or the teachings of dead men. But the Christianity is the only one that's founded upon the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus could not, and I repeat, absolutely not be prevented. We read there together that it was not possible 
that he, Jesus, could be held by it, death. It was not possible. Once Christ went to the cross, once he cried, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Then nothing in earth, nothing under the earth could prevent Jesus rising again on the third day. Satan and all of his hosts could not stop it. How could death hold him in whom is the spirit of life? How could the dust of the earth claim him in whom the scripture said that he would be incorruptible? How could that happen? It couldn't happen. Once he died on the cross, nothing, absolutely nothing could prevent his resurrection. Jesus himself never ever doubted that he would rise again. Never. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. He said, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again. Never a doubt in his mind for a second that once he would die for our sins, that he would rise again from the grave. In fact, it would have been a miracle if Jesus had not risen from the dead. You see, in God's economy, death is the exception to the rule of life. Death is the exception to the rule of life. Life. Sorry. Life is the exception to the rule of death. However, because of our thinking because we live in a mortal body, because we live with death all around us day and daily, because it's so universal, because it's so commonplace, somehow or other we begin to think, we begin to think that life is the exception to death. But that was never God's rule. That was never God's thinking. That was never God's plan for mankind. God's rule is life. It is eternal life. It is abundant life. It is glorious life. When God made man, he made him immortal. Adam in his original state was immortal. He was made fully grown. He wasn't made to age. He wasn't debilitated or incapacitated in any way. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, he was a whole man made to live forever. That's what God intended. But he had the option, he had the choice. He had a will to exercise. And we know what happened, he exercised his will. He partook of that forbidden fruit. And what happened, death came in because sin came in. Sin entered into his spirit. And when that happened, immediately, instantly, spiritual death came into him. You say, well, what is spiritual death? It's simply separation from God. That's what spiritual death is. Suddenly, he was separated from God. Suddenly, he ran from the presence of God. Suddenly, that wonderful, open, intimate, close fellowship and relationship with Almighty God was broken. That's what sin did. It brought death. It brought separation. And God had to put him out of the very 
paradise of Eden had to be a separation. And we know that once spiritual death came in, the seeds of physical death were also sown. And then physical death entered into human race. And we know that when that happened, that every man born of Adam was going to die. You see, before the fall, there was no death working in Adam because there was no sin working in Adam. There was no other law in his members working against him. There was only life, an abundant life. But suddenly, when spiritual death came in, and physical death would follow in the heels of spiritual death. And not only would there be a separation between him and God, but eventually there would be separation between his body and his spirit, which is physical death. Eternal death, by the way, is separation of the spirit and the body from God eternally, forever, in hell. And so, God's rule is life. And death is the exception to God's rule of life. Now you see, this is the way Paul thought. He said to Agrippa, why do you think it's impossible that God should raise the dead? Why would that be a strange thing? His whole thinking was that God raises the dead because Christ rose from the dead, because Christ is the first fruits of all who die. In Adam, he said, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And Jesus said in Revelation 1 and 8, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. Who is in charge here? Who's the master of death and hell? Christ the master, isn't he? Now, why was the resurrection of Jesus an absolute certainty? Why was it not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Why was he different than all other men in this respect? Well, let me just give you a few reasons. First of all, because of his own inherent power. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. I lay down my life. I take it up again. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Within him, there was the power of the resurrection. He didn't just say, I can perform a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. His life is so absolutely different. And secondly, and very importantly, because of God's own prophetic word. Now, isn't it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter began to preach, one of the main planks in his message, in fact, the two main planks in all New Testament preaching is the cross and the resurrection. Now, there's lots of other teachings, but that's the two main planks. In fact, if you read through just about every book in the New Testament, you'll find the nucleus of the resurrection teaching in just about every book. It was so absolutely fundamental to the first and early church. It so revolutionized and changed their whole lives. Without the resurrection, there would have been nothing, only defeat. But the resurrection brought victory. 
And so because of God's prophetic word, Peter, in his first great sermon, he quotes Psalm 16. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my flesh rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. Now, see the way Peter took that scripture that David wrote all those years before, and he takes it as prophetic of speaking of Christ. My flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol or Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so God's prophetic word was the guarantee also that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, there was little Scriptures and there was little, little pictures Little visualizations, even that Jesus used, for example. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, let me just show you this, Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see that Jesus is using his death and his resurrection. He's using this sign of Jonah as a sign of his own death, his own resurrection. By the way, that's one of the greatest reasons why we should believe in the story of Jonah and the great fish. Because Jesus himself spoke of it and used it. So if that's not true, then Jesus is actually lying here. And of course that could never happen, could it? So it is a true story. It actually really happened. And Jesus uses that Old Testament story as a sign that he indeed would rise again the third day. He also used this, uh, the sign of the, the temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again on the third day. And then we see way back in Job 19, you don't turn to this. Job said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job didn't know how prophetically he was speaking when he uttered those words. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he shall stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And then Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. And so because of prophetic scriptures, because, number three, of his personal purity, his own holiness, in Acts 27, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
Now think for a moment. Because Jesus, because of his pure holiness, he was uncorrupted. Therefore, he was incorruptible. None of us are uncorrupted. Sure we're not? All of us are tainted with sin. All of us are tainted with the old nature, the old man, as the Bible describes that. But not Jesus. And because he was totally and completely pure, holy, spotless, uncorrupted, therefore he was incorruptible. And God would make sure that he would rise again the third day to show us and to prove to us. You see, there is no death working in Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according, listen to it, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. See how his holiness, his incorruptibility, see how that is linked with his resurrection. You know, Jesus was not the first man to be resurrected, obviously. Not the first person. Remember the widow of Nain's son that Jesus himself resurrected. Remember Jairus' daughter that Jesus resurrected. Remember Lazarus resurrected after four days. By this time he stinks, the sister said. Corruption had set in. But God says, I will not allow my Holy One to see corruption. He was incorruptible. Because no death was working in Jesus, no other law working in his members, no sin nature, human nature, yes, but a sinless, spotless, faultless, incorruptible, uncorrupted human nature, no other man lived this way. And because his personal purity was intact, he literally had to, had to, give himself up to death because death had no hold upon him because there was no sin nature in him. The reason why we die is because of sin. That's the reason. Because of our sin nature. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But not Jesus. And Jesus had to give himself. I give my life for the sheep. He gave himself up to death. He submitted himself to death for our sakes. The Bible says that he became sin for us, but not sinful. He became sin for us, but not sinful. It really means he became the sin offering. Now we saw in our drama last night when the grandfather and the little girl come to bring the lamb to the temple. We saw the grandfather said, but the little lamb has to be spotless, with no blemish, perfect. It's the only type of lamb they could offer up. If there's any spot or speckle, could not offer. It had to be spotless. Outwardly had to be absolutely perfect and spotless before they could offer it. Jesus was perfect and spotless inwardly. There was no corruption in him. He was uncorrupted. Therefore, he had to voluntarily give himself over to death. He says, no man can take my life. No man. We saw in our drama again, drama again last night 
we saw that when Pilate was speaking to Jesus, remember what Jesus said? You would have no power over me at all except it was given you from above. That's what Jesus said to Pilate. You have the power of the sword, actually he was saying. You have the power of the sword in the natural because you're the Roman authority here. You can put to life if you want to. But actually in this case, in my case, you would have no power over me except it's already been given you. This is permissible by my father. This is part of the great plan, you see. And so, because of his personal holiness and purity... Let me give you some reasons why God raised him from the dead. First of all, for our justification. In Romans 4.25 it says, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. Who went to the cross, in other words, because of our offenses. He took our sins. He bore our sins on the cross. But then he had to be raised for our justification. Simply Jesus just going onto the cross alone would not have been enough to justify us. He had to be raised again from the dead to justify us. Wonderful as the cross is, we can't do without the cross, but neither can we do without the resurrection. He had to be raised for our justification. It was part of the same deal. And thank God he was raised for our justification because it's the only thing that can justify us. The fact that Christ died on the cross and that three days later he rose again, that's our justification. It's not because of who we are or what we have done or what we say. It's because of everything he did for us. And that's why Christianity is a religion built on grace and grace alone, isn't it? Every other religion is built on works. What you can do, what you know. All the rest of it. But Christianity is all stripped back down to what he did on the cross and to the Father raising him from the dead. That's what it's stripped down to, those two things. Now do you understand why those two things above all things in Christianity are the two things that are attacked the most? That's the two things Satan attacks the most. Every Easter, every, and this is no exception, every Easter, somebody will come up and try to attack the resurrection. Somebody will come and attack the cross on Good Friday. They'll make up some story. He fainted, he swooned. That was, that was done in those days too. It's done in these days. And come the resurrection, one Church of England uh, archbishop one said, time said, blasphemy, he said. This was blasphemous. He said uh, the resurrection was a conjuring trick with bones. Can you imagine the head of a church saying such a blasphemous thing? That's how much he disbelieved. And by disbelieving the resurrection, there's no justification for him. He can't be justified. So when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, do you know that many men have found Christ through looking at the Gospels, trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, but having searched and researched the Gospels, could come to no other conclusion that this man did indeed rise again from the dead. Can you think of the disciples? Why would they make up a story? Why would they imagine? Why would they concoct some story about Jesus rising from the dead? What would give them the courage to do that? They ran away when he was alive. When he was hanging on the cross, they ran away. They were frightened. In the upper room, they were, they, were, they were waiting for, you know, but 
Why do you think they couldn't have made up a story? They couldn't have lived that way. They hadn't got the guts to do that, to live. They believed because it was true, because they met the living Christ. He says, touch me, handle me. He was raised for our justification. And God raised him from the dead to prove his divinity. Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Very few people believed that he was the son of God. Even his closest, dearest disciples, almost all of them forsook him and fled at the cross. Almost all of them believed that that was it over when he died, when he was buried. The dream was gone. The vision was over. He was just a man, a good man, a prophet, absolutely, miracle worker, but the son of God. Do you know that his own brothers his own brothers actually didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. But God raised him from the dead and said, look, this is my son. This is my son. He is divine. God raised him from the dead also to be the head of the church. Wonderful scripture in Ephesians 1 in verses 19 to 23. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But the head of the Christian church is not the Pope. It's not an archbishop. It's not a vicar of Christ. It's Christ himself. It's the living, resurrected, glorified Christ himself. Glory to God. And he is the head of the church. And that's why the church will never, ever feel. Never feel. Because the head can never feel. Oh yes, individual members. Yes, individual collection of members that we call the church that meets in buildings. Yeah, we feel. But the head will never fail. And the body worldwide, the great body of Christ, the church worldwide. In fact, today it's the fastest growing, if you could use the term religious movement in the whole world. It's not Islam. Don't anybody ever let you think differently. The West is different than what's happening all over the rest of the world. If you're going by the Western society, you would think that. But what's happening all over the world shows us differently. The church is exploding all over the world. And Christ is the head of a wonderful church. And he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. 
a victorious church. God raised him from the dead to be the head of the church. God raised him from the dead that we may walk in the power of a new life. Paul says in Romans 6, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's something about the resurrection that gives us new spiritual life. And this is why Easter Sunday is the most important date in the Christian calendar. God raised him from the dead that you and I might be raised from the dead. Romans 8 and 11, But if the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus says, Because I live, you shall live also. Any pastor, any minister that's been a ministry for many years will tell you that the one wonderful thing when you conduct a funeral service is to know if it's a saint of God that that person will rise, that person will rise again, that God will make sure that person will rise again in the resurrection and that they will be in the glory forever and forever and forever. That's the great comfort, the great hope of the church. I have done many funerals and I couldn't say that and I couldn't preach that and I couldn't say this person well I knew they were going to rise from the dead I knew there was going to be a resurrection for everybody but I couldn't say they were going to rise to life I couldn't say that over their grave and that's a tragedy those are the hardest funerals ever to do but you know when you're looking at a saint who's lived a good full life you know when I conducted the funeral service of my own mother, she was 98 years old, those of you who were at it, I tell you, it was a time of joy. It was a time of victory. She was 98. She'd lived all of her full life. And most of that life she'd lived as a believer, loved the Lord. She was ready to go into the glory. And she was absolutely guaranteed the resurrection unto life eternal. So therefore... We could rejoice. Now it's different when somebody's younger and much younger and there's a greater sense of loss. But when you're 98, I mean, it's a long time, isn't it? And you've been ready to go for years and years and years. <laughs> because I live, you shall live also. God raised him from the dead that he might be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2 it says, This Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which ye both see and hear. Jesus said to those disciples, he says, I want you to go and I want you to wait until you be endued with power from on high. And then the Holy Spirit came. But make no mistake, Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one, and this is a little bit, the Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes us into the body of Christ. But Christ is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. 
Do you understand that? So when we're filled with the Spirit, it's because Christ pours His Spirit into us. He's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Then God raised him from the dead that he might be a prince and a savior. In Acts 5, 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior. You know, when Peter preached, he never missed his opportunity, particularly to the religious crowd. He never missed his opportunity to tell them they were the ones who murdered him. But he's now a prince and he's a savior. He sits at the right hand of God. You know, I read a lot about critics and higher critics and see them on television. And you feel like shouting at that screen, talk all you want, criticize all you like, Make up stories all you want, but one day you will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day you will bow that proud knee and you'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter says he's raised up to be Prince and Savior. And then God raised him from the dead to be our intercessor and advocate. Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. When Jesus rose from the dead, and that day when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, that was not the end of his ministry. It was on earth, physically. The Holy Spirit would be the ministry on earth in and through us. But he then ascended to the right hand of the Father to begin what he's doing right now. And what he's been doing for 2,000 years, he's praying for you and he's praying for me. He's interceding. He's our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. Isn't it great to think that there's one in heaven? It's lovely when somebody comes and says, look, I'm praying for you. That's wonderful. But when you know you've got one in heaven praying for you, and when all earthly prayers fail, not prayers, but prayers, those who are praying. When they all feel we have got one in heaven who's our intercessor, whose prayers don't feel. What a joy. What a thrill it is to know this living Christ. You know, when Jesus rose again from the dead, we'll be closed just in a moment. That body he rose with, even though it was physical flesh and even though he looked the same but there was something different about this body this resurrection body it's called a flesh and bone body not called a flesh and blood body flesh and bone body flesh and blood would not inherit the kingdom of heaven Something supernatural, mystical, extraordinary happened to his body. He was able to walk right through walls. And yet he was able to eat. Because he made the first beach barbecue, didn't he? Remember when the disciples came, he had fish frying for them. And he was able to eat. 
But there's something different about his body. He just appeared in a room with locked doors. <sighs> Must have scared the living dead out of those disciples. You'd be scared, wouldn't you? <coughs> but there's something different about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 54, Paul calls this a spiritual body. That's a strange, a spiritual body. Remember that Paul says that we're going to have a body just like him. So something's going to happen to you and to me in the resurrection. And we're going to have a body, well, we'll recognize each other, but something will be inherently different. God will supernaturally change us. So Paul talks about a spiritual body. A heavenly body. No longer just an earthly body, but a heavenly body. A glorified body. Something, I could give you loads of scriptures for this, but we we'll haven't time. A glorified body. Something God's going to do to us the way he did, for, did to Christ. Because we'll have a body like unto his glorious body. And there'll be no weakness. No inabilities. And I can lay down these glasses and you can take your contact lenses out. That'd be great. And the varicous veins won't bother us anymore. And that'd be great for some. Because we'll be perfect in every absolute way. And it'll be an immortal body. It will never, ever die again. Everybody that Jesus raised from the dead died. The widow of Nain's son, at some point later in life, maybe as an old man, but he died. Jairus' daughter at some point died again. Lazarus at some point died again. But Jesus rose in the power of an endless life. And as I always tell you, that's the difference between a resurrected body and a resurrection body. Resurrected bodies died again. A resurrection body never dies again. And you and I will rise in the resurrection and we will never ever die again. It's immortal. And this is a real body, not a ghost, not some kind of specter. He said to Thomas, he says, reach out your hand. Put them in the nail prints. He says, come on, touch my side. Feed it, he says. Feed it. Feed it for yourself. It's real. Not a ghost. Of course, he didn't have to. He believed by then, didn't he? But Jesus put him to the test. It's real. So you and I will have this same type of body in the resurrection, but it will be real. Even though like Christ, it'll do unusual, extraordinary things, but it'll be real. But it'll be different. And yet it'll be the same. Who can explain it? Huh? Isn't it wonderful? You know, and that's the one big major plus out of it. Someday when you're rolling them into the ground, you know that that's just, we call the remains. And it is just the remains, but the spirit is really gone to the glory. But one day God will supernaturally gather up the remains, even though they're into dust. And in an instant, an atom of time, suddenly we're changed. And we'll have this wonderful, wonderful body. This incorruptible body. Glory to God. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important thing. It proves so much. Everything you and I believe as Christians hangs upon it. And that's why Satan tries every way possible 
to demean it, to deny it, to decry it. But the believer holds it up and said, this is the truth. Jesus rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. And right now he sits at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Glory to God. Lord, we thank you today that you are a living, resurrected Christ. That you're not hanging on a cross today. Wonderful as important as that was, you're not in a tomb today. The stone was rolled away and you are right now at the right hand of your Father. Glorified. Hallelujah. And we thank you, Lord, for all that that means to us this morning. We thank you for this wonderful resurrection morning. Lord, all of our future was dependent upon it. And we thank you, Lord, that even death cannot prevent it for us. We thank you, Lord, that we will stand at the last day. Because you live, we shall live also. So we bless you this morning. We give you thanks for the cross and we give you thanks for the resurrection. We thank you for these two main things. Lord, we bless you for all that you've done for each of us. Thank you for changing our lives forever. And we bless you. Lord, bless tonight as the drama takes place. We thank you for all that was said and spoken last night for all that our eyes saw. We thank you for the lives that was touched, for the hearts that was touched. We just pray that tonight, Lord, again, as we do it all over again, that new people will come in, that more lives will be, Lord, confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his trial, his execution, and his resurrection unto life eternal. We pray, Lord, that hearts would be moved to the cross, that hearts would be moved and be one for Jesus. We ask this in his wonderful, glorious, majestic name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.